Holy God, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Well, today we are wrapping up our sermon series on parables. We're wrapping up talking about the kingdom of God, which we have learned a little bit about, about how it flips things on its head, about how there is an urgency that goes along with it, about how it is not always matching the wisdom that we have of the world. And today what we're going to talk about is not technically a parable. Some people might call it the parable of the sheep and the goats, but it's not really a parable in the traditional sense. But this sheep and goats metaphor is the way Jesus talks about separating the nations at the final judgment between those who have done the most important work and those who have avoided it. And I figured while we're on the topic, I would talk about a different kind of goat. You see, goat is also a modern acronym for greatest of all time. You would talk about the goat musician or band. Or, you know, you might talk about the goat basketball player, who is the greatest of all time. You know, the debate in basketball is always between modern players, but I want everybody here to go on a trip with me back to the 1960s. Because if you're going to talk about basketball, and we're going to talk about basketball, in the 1960s, you're talking about two players who compete for the greatest of all time moniker. The first is Wilt Chamberlain. Anybody heard of him? Wilt is famous for having these absolutely gaudy statistics. He had a season where he averaged 50 points a game and pulled down 26 rebounds. You've got to understand, this year in the NBA, which is considered a very offensive, heavy season, the lead scorer is a guy named Joel Embiid, who's scoring 33 points a game, 17 less than Wilt scored. So Wilt had this season like any other, and the season wasn't all that uncommon for him. He put up incredible scoring numbers, incredible rebounding numbers. So if you go back to the 1960s, Wilt is clearly the GOAT, right? Well, there's another name that comes up in this debate all the time. It's a guy named Bill Russell. Have you heard of him? He just died about a year ago, actually. And Russell's numbers are much more subdued. He averaged almost exactly half as many points as Wilt Chamberlain did over his career. The rebounding rate was just about the same. But if you ask most serious NBA fans, most of them are going to say, Bill Russell is the GOAT. Which doesn't really make sense, right? He didn't score as much. He rebounded about exactly the same. His stats just weren't as good as Wilt. But if you're playing a basketball game, what's the goal? Winning. So in his career, Wilt Chamberlain won two NBA championships. Meanwhile, Bill Russell won 11 NBA championships a number that is unprecedented to this day in professional sports. So Chamberlain was very famous for putting up gaudy stats that you would look at and go, that is incredible, impressive. 
But meanwhile, Bill Russell was the quintessential team player, a star who sacrificed his own statistical record for the sake of his team, playing rock-solid defense and elevating those around him. So Jesus today is talking about the sheep and the goat. And what he's really talking about is what is going to matter in the end. It's though he is asking all of us to elevate our life performances. But the question isn't, did you put up great statistics? Did you get a lot done? Did you make a lot of money? Did you influence a lot of people? For Jesus, none of that is most important. Jesus makes it clear what we will be judged on is not what we personally accomplish, but instead what we do for others. Whether we feed the hungry or clothe the naked or visit those in prison or welcome the stranger. So with that, let's listen to our passage today from the end of Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food? or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of those who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. May God bless this reading. Well, last week we touched on this passage just a little bit because we were talking about the parables of the bridesmaids. And I mentioned that that parable, along with this story today, uh, mark this turn in Matthew's gospel towards what theologians call eschatology, which is a fancy Greek word of saying the end times. What will it be like at the end? But there's another way of referring to these stories, to referring to the end times. That word is the word apocalypse. Apocalypse. 
But the word apocalypse doesn't mean exactly what we think it means. Uh, the Greek word apocalypto actually translates as to reveal. So when you're thinking about the last book of the Bible, you'll sometimes hear it called the Apocalypse of John. But most likely you know it by its other name, Revelation. But these verses that focus on the end times, these apocalypse verses, they're not just talking about what the end of the world will be like. They are also revealing something that the authors believe can only be seen through spiritual eyes. It's like they are revealing something that is happening underneath the surface of our material world that we're not always aware of. We don't always see it. They're revealing what God is doing. And this genre of literature in scripture, this apocalyptic literature or eschatological, whatever fancy word you want to use, end times literature, didn't always exist in scripture. Talk of the end times, of the spiritual conflict at the heart of the world and of the final judgment, these were somewhat late in Jewish scripture. But it often comes in the same kind of scenario. So you have a community of people who are living together and something has happened that has overwhelmed the people. So if you go to the sixth century in Israel, you have the Jewish people living in Jerusalem and they are conquered by the Babylonians and they are exiled hundreds of miles away from their home and they are wondering how in the world are we going to get out of this predicament? It is overwhelming. Or they're conquered by Alexander the Great and are under the presence of a new empire in the second century, one which wants to do away with their practices and their devotions. You can imagine in these situations a hopelessness sets in and people begin to start thinking that resistance is too much. You might as well just give in and give up. But in the midst of the Babylonian exile, the prophet Isaiah writes about a final feast that God is preparing in which he will gather the nations together, in which the people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It is an image of what it will be like at the end when God is done doing God's work. Or in the book of Daniel, you have passages about a final judgment when God comes back and judges the nations of the world. And in the New Testament, you have the same kind of feeling. There's this feeling about this in regards to the Roman Empire. How are we going to escape the Roman Empire? How are we going to outlive this in fact, if you go to that famous apocalyptic book, Revelation, the last book of the Bible, you see all of this imagery that looks a lot like Rome. The beast is talked about as having seven heads on seven hills. Of course, Rome famously, mythologically, was built on seven hills. You hear about a beast who has the number 666 written on its forehead. Well, there's a, a process of numerology that you can find in the Hebrew language. And 666, when you use that, spells out the name Neron Caesar, the Roman Empire at the time that that book was written, who was famous for carrying out the first systematic persecution of Christians. So the point of these texts, these apocalyptic texts, 
is to encourage believers. You may feel like everything is hopeless. You may feel like what you're doing isn't going to amount to very much. But when God's work is revealed, you actually see that God is in the midst of a great spiritual battle in which God, the all-powerful, the almighty, is winning. So keep on going. So our passage today is one of these apocalyptic scriptures. It reveals something about the spiritual world that we can't see. And it begins with this image, right, of the Son of Man on his throne. This is the end that Jesus is talking about. And Jesus is revealing something. When it comes to the end and the final judgment takes place, what, what will be rewarded? It's another way of saying, what is it that makes a faithful follower? What is most important in our faith? What is most important in our lives? You know, if you look at the material world that we all live in and see, we follow the news, we're on social media, you could make a pretty strong case that storing up treasure for ourselves is most important. After all, who doesn't like wealth and power and prestige? Those are the things that are valued, after all. But Jesus is revealing that there's something else at play. There's something else that matters more to God. Have you fed the hungry? Have you given water to those who are thirsty? Have you visited those in need? Have you welcomed the stranger? Because that's what's most important. And in the end, when God comes to evaluate how we lived our lives, it's not going to be our personal accomplishments that matter most. It's going to be how we treat the least of these. Now, you may not always be able to see how living a life that way is going to benefit you personally. But there's something more going on. And God will separate those who have been faithful and those who haven't. So you want to be the goat. I mean the sheep. You want to be on the side of Jesus' mission in the world. And the directions are pretty clear. Care for the least of these. Seek to serve others. You know, in the basketball world, the GOAT conversation today involves two players, Michael Jordan and LeBron James. Younger folks tend to appreciate LeBron James more because they, let's face it, they, they didn't see Michael Jordan play. They didn't have that feeling of inevitability whenever the Bulls went to the finals and you thought, oh goodness, he's going to win another one. Couldn't imagine him losing. But I want to add something to LeBron James's case that helps us think about our scripture for today. Because James, about a month ago, became the all-time scoring leader in NBA history, which is a record that a lot of people thought would never fall. But I loved it. When he was interviewed about this, he's just broken Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's all-time scoring record. And he's asked about if he's proud of it. And what he said is that's not what he's most proud about. 
said what he's most proud about is his record in passing. And he's really good at it. This year, LeBron James passed Mark Jackson and Steve Nash to reach number four on the all-time assist leaderboard. As in, he has spent his career setting up his other teammates. For comparison, Michael Jordan is 51st on that list. So for a player who has also scored the most points in history, to have that many assists is remarkable. Now, does that make him the GOAT? We can, you, if you want to ask me back in the Narthex later on, I'm seeing some, some shaking heads. But I think it really does reiterate what Jesus is saying. In the end, what we will be judged on is not our personal accolades. It's not what we accomplish or how much money we make or how great we are. What we will be judged on is what we do to help others. What we will be judged on is whether we show love and compassion to the least of these. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, life's most persistent and urgent question is what are you doing for others? And it's a question that still rings true today, but we should extend it, not just what are you doing, but what are we doing? We as a church are here to follow Jesus. We could all individually live our lives without needing to come together, yet we feel compelled at some level to come together because we believe that we can do more together than apart. So as a church, what are we doing to care for the least of these? What are the resources that we have to show love? Because we've been talking this entire series about the fact that we've been called to live for a different kingdom. One which flips the kingdoms of this world on their heads. One which privileges care for the poor above all else. One which calls us to be ready at a moment's notice. And that calls us to be a different kind of people. So are we ready? Do we see this new kingdom? Let's live for it. Amen. As we gather for worship, we invite you to connect with us. If you're worshiping with us for the first time, and we invite you to take a moment to introduce yourself following worship. And that goes same if you're on.